Since 1988, the Gallup pollsters have been doing survey-based research to look at the economic divide in our country. And one of the questions that they've continued to track in this uh, longitudinal study is this. If you had to choose, which of these two groups are you in? The haves or the have-nots? They've asked this question. It's a, you only have two choices here. Which of these two groups are you in? The haves or the have-nots? And essentially, they're asking the question, do you consider yourself to be rich in the haves group or do you consider yourself to be poor in the have-nots group? And I want us to consider that question as we begin this morning. Now listen, this is not a Jesus juke. Okay, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm, I'm literally asking the same question that the pollsters are asking. I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, throw one of those quick Christian jokes on you where it's like, well, really I meant are you poor in spirit and rich in Christ. I literally mean we're talking about economics and finances here. Money and access to the things that money affords. If you were to answer this question, do you consider yourself to be rich or poor? Are you a have or are you a have-not? And as you start to think about that question, as, as you're kind of weighing your two options, it's natural and it's actually necessary to start having some definitions of wealth and poverty. So like what, what standards define wealth? What standards divine, uh, decide and define uh, poverty, right? Because you need some, uh, some standards to know, do you qualify for a certain group? Or are you disqualified from another group? In his book, Countercultural, David Platt offers a helpful way to think through what it means to be rich. He writes, whenever we hear the word rich, we immediately think of the kind of people who have far more than we do. And consequently, we rarely perceive ourselves as rich, but we need a new perspective. For if we have clean water, sufficient food and clothes, a roof over our head at night, access to medicine, a mode of transportation, even if it's public, and the ability to read a book, then relative to billions of people in the world, we are incredibly wealthy. Now hearing that understanding, hearing that standard of wealth, let me ask the question again. If you had to choose which of these two groups, the haves or the have-nots, which group are you in? See, we're continuing in our sermon series in Justice for All, and we're looking at the intersection of justice and poverty. Now, like every topic we've covered so far in this series, they're all complex issues, right? We can't say everything about everything on any one of these topics in one sermon. So let me just lower expectations this morning. We are not going to solve the problem of poverty in one sermon. We're not going to be able to dive deep into all the realities that can cause poverty, such as calamity and exploitation, harmful social structures, the lack of education, foolish decisions, family backgrounds, mental health, politics, greed, and the list of causes literally goes on. We can't get into all of those this morning. And even when we talk about poverty, we're talking about, well, what geography are we talking about? Are we talking about just local poverty here in Waltham and the surrounding communities? Are we talking about regional poverty throughout New England? Are we talking about national poverty in the U.S.? Are we talking about worldwide global poverty? And all of those have different complexities to them. 
And did you know that by some counts, the Bible talks about poverty in over 2,000 verses? Which makes up about 6% of the Bible, making it a very big topic. It's, it's one of those themes that runs throughout the Bible. We're not going to be able to look at every single one of them. And so with all the complexities and the vastness of this issue and our ability to only cover limited ground, let me tell you where we are going to go this morning. First, we're going to consider God's concern for the poor. With over 2,000 verses that address poverty, not only is the Bible not silent on the topic, it shows us that God is, is concerned about and cares about the plight of the poor. So that's our first point, God's concern for the poor. The second is going to be our responsibility to the poor. And we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and see that those who follow Christ have a responsibility to care for our neighbors in need. And then finally, we'll try to get practical and look at our ministry to the poor. We'll look at our motivation for ministry, what drives it to make sure that it's proper and right and coming from good motives. And then we're going to look at some practical ways that we can help alleviate poverty in our communities and the world. So let's begin together with God's concern for the poor. As we quickly survey scripture, again I can't cover every single verse, but we're going to cover a lot of verses today. We're going to see that God's concern for the poor is seen in his nature We'll see it's, uh, his, God's concern for the poor in his commands. And also we'll see God's concern for the poor in his actions. So the first subheading in this heading is his nature. That God in his very nature, rooted in his loving nature, is a concern for the poor. Just look with me at Psalm 113, 5, and eight, 5 through 8. Psalmist writes, Who is like the Lord our God, seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. See, the psalmist is praising God for his utter uniqueness. You hear that? Who is like the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, meaning no one. There's no one like our Lord. He is all-powerful. He's majestic. He is seated on high, and yet... What? He's concerned for the poor. Friends, God's majesty, his greatness, his power never implies his remoteness. Because you could think that someone that powerful, that grandeur, that majestic would be remote and aloof and far off, not concerned with the things happening down here on earth. But rather, it's his power and his majesty that drive him to see what is often overlooked in our society. He sees the poor. And not only does he see them, but he gives them the dignity and status of royalty. Now this is a stark contrast to the gods of antiquity, which is the time period when this is being written. This is a stark contrast even to the powerful of our own day who often despise and overlook the poor. Tom Holland, who I've been quoting a lot lately, he's an expert in the field of antiquity. He writes this, The gods cared nothing for the poor. To think otherwise was airhead talk. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were at best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. 
only fellow citizens of good character who through no fault of their own had fallen on evil days might conceivably merit assistance. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the gods of antiquity cared nothing for the poor and likewise neither did people who followed them. If you were poor in antiquity, there were no uh, poor houses, there there was no such thing as charity. There were no orphanages. If you were poor, you were simply out of luck. And it's into this milieu that the writers of the Bible are declaring a different kind of God. He is a God, all-powerful, and yet he is concerned for the poor. Here's another one from Isaiah 25, verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Here Isaiah speaks to the nature and character of God as a stronghold, which means a refuge or a high tower, a fortress. It's a place that's inaccessible from enemies. What he's saying is God is a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. Friends, the redeemed of God ultimately have a better defense than the fortified cities of man. We have a shade that cannot be moved, a shelter that cannot be shaken, and God is an advocate and a defender of the oppressed and the vulnerable and the poor. God's for the concern for the poor is rooted in his very nature. He will never forget them. Psalm 9:18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. But not only is God's concern for the poor rooted in his nature, it's also seen in his commands. Look at Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8 and 10 through 11. This is as Israel is beginning to be formed as a nation. He's giving them laws to structure their society. They're about to enter into the promised land. Moses is telling them, if one among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord God has given you, You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in your land. Therefore I command you. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. You hear God's concern for the poor and his commands? He's telling them to take care of the poor. In fact, when God established Israel as a nation with laws and order, his desire was that they would have a distinctive kind of society. That as they followed the commands of God, not only would there be relational harmony between them and God, but there would also be relational harmony, a kind of thriving and flourishing in the relationships amongst the people of Israel. And one of the ways that God wanted them to be distinct was that there would be no poor among them. Now think about that. And all the surrounding nations around them, the poor would be marginalized, despised, they would be overlooked, and they're supposed to be a city on a hill, a light among the nations to show a different way of life. That as the way that they showed care and concern for the poor, that other nations looking in would see something starkly 
different. That's why God made all of these provisions for the poor. If you go back and you read through the rest of Deuteronomy, you'll see that certain tithing was given to feed not only the Levitical priests, but also the poor. The poor had essentially like a food pantry to come and get food. In Leviticus 19, under this command for the people of God to love their neighbors as themselves, one of the practical outworkings of that command is that as people were harvesting their crops, that they wouldn't take everything off the vine. They wouldn't take everything off the stock. That They would intentionally leave stuff behind. And if some of their crops fell to the ground, the command was don't pick it up. Leave something behind. Open up your fields so that the poor may come and gather food for their need. Another common practice in antiquity was for a person to sell themselves into indentured servitude. So if they racked up a debt, if they had bills they couldn't pay, uh, and they had nothing else to give, no job, they could essentially sell themselves into, uh, uh, to work off their debt. And into this practice, God provided relief. First, all, uh, throughout all Israel, from the king all the way down to indentured uh, slaves, everyone got a day off. Now think about that. Do you think the other nations around them gave their slaves a day day off? Of course not. It was provision that you could not work your servants without relief. Everyone got a day off. And then God said every seven years all debts are forgiven. And anyone who sold themselves into this indentured servanthood are to be set free. Do you see God's concern for the poor? That he's working into their laws, into their very practices, relief. These are just a few of the laws and practices that God established to show them his concern for the poor. What was the goal? The goal was that there would not be any poor among Israel. Look what God says in Deuteronomy 15. But there will be, or there should be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today what he's saying is if you'll follow my instructions the land is going to provide plenty for you You don't have to live with this scarcity mindset that, oh, I need to keep everything and hoard it for myself because I'm not going to have enough. God is saying the land, if you will follow me, will be abundant and plentiful. So look out for your brothers and your sisters. But not only do we see God's concern for the poor in his nature and his commands, we also see it in his actions. Look at Psalm 146, 5 through 7. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. This all-powerful and all-knowing God who made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them, he is a faithful, loving God who executes justice for the oppressed and needy. He's an advocate for the def- and a defender for the weak. Psalm 72, 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life 
and precious is their blood in his sight. Psalm 12, 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God has moved to action. And when poverty and oppression break our spirits and weighs heavy on our hearts, don't worry. Because Psalm 34 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord's concern for the poor, friends, is not theoretical. These aren't empty promises. He is moved to action. Now, this doesn't mean he always acts according to our will or our timing. God is not a vending machine. You just put in your prayers and your tithing and then God responds immediately. But God does defend the cause of the poor and the oppressed. And ultimately, those who take refuge in him will be lifted up either in this life or the next. This is what Jesus promises in Luke 6, 20-21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, there is coming a day when the poor and the hungry and the broken who've taken refuge and put their trust in the Lord will find an inheritance of epic proportion. Satisfaction beyond imagination and eternal laughter that will make all the sad things come untrue. Now, of course, there is incredible nuance in understanding how God acts to alleviate the sufferings of poverty in the here and now. Sometimes he moves through his people, which we're going to talk about later. Sometimes he moves in ways that are almost undetectable in the background, behind the scenes that seem slow to us, that are hard to detect. And sometimes the reality is alleviation doesn't come now. And it comes in the life hereafter. And this isn't the sermon to unpack all the ways in which God uh, uses sufferings um, for eternal glory. This isn't a sermon right now to talk about all the ways that God alleviates sermon, but what I, uh, suffering. But what I want you to see right now is that scripture is clear. Is that God is concerned with the poor. It's rooted in his very nature. We see it in his commands and we see it in his Actions. That's our first point. God is concerned with the poor. Number two, let's look and see our responsibility to the poor. Earlier, Becca read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in it we see a lawyer who comes to Jesus. And Luke tells us that he's trying to, to test Jesus to, or, or, to, or to trick him to see kind of what does Jesus know. And he asks, well, how does someone inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question with a question. He asks the lawyer, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He's basically saying, well, you answer first. What do you think? And the lawyer, who knows his Bible, summarizes. He synthesizes all of the law like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the... That's the great Shema. It's the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. And then the second, 
which we saw earlier in Leviticus, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And really, he's saying if you love God well and if you love people well, you essentially are doing all of the law. And Jesus tells them he's correct. See, when we love God above all things and with all we've got, when that love begins to transform our hearts so that we love others as we love ourselves, Jesus said that's the kind of life that inherits eternal life. But Luke tells us that this lawyer wanted to justify himself by limiting his responsibility. That's why he asks, well, okay, but who is my neighbor? I get it. There's a responsibility here to love my neighbor, but I want to make sure that I've done it right. So who is my neighbor? He wants to narrow the definition, narrow the scope of who qualifies to be his neighbor. In other words... The lawyer wants to minimize his responsibility by creating a class of neighbors and non-neighbors. Right? You see that? He wants to go, well, clearly I can't love everybody, so I want to know who isn't my neighbor. Then Jesus goes on to tell him the now famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Now there is lots that could be mined in this uh, parable. We could spend a whole sermon series on it. But I, I want us to just come away with the big picture Parables often do this. There's a lot of nitty-gritty you can get into, but they are all coming away with one big picture lesson. So as I read this parable, listen for it. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. Likewise, As a a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Then Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. So we've got this man traveling down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a steep and dangerous road. Jerusalem's built at an elevation about 3,000 feet above sea level. And so you have to go down. It's a windy and kind of treacherous path. It was known in its day as the bloody way. So everyone hearing Jesus' parable would have known this is a dangerous and treacherous road. It's like walking down a dark alley at night in that bad gang-ridden part of town that you would never go to. And here this man was robbed and beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And it just so happened that both a priest and a Levite saw this man. And for reasons of their own that we don't know, they leave the man to his misery. But then the unlikely hero of the story shows up. It's a Samaritan. And if you've been around your Bible long enough, you know you should have some flashes going off. Wait, Samaritan, the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along. In fact, Jews can't stand Samaritans. They consider them half-breed traitors. And it's the Samaritan who saw the needy man and had compassion on him. 
He takes what amounts to be a first century medical aid kit, the oil and the wine, and he binds up his wounds and he takes him to an inn so that he could give him further attention so that this man could have some rest. He pays for his room and says, I'll cover any additional cost when I come back, which means he's coming back. He's, he's going to give additional time and concern to this man. And Jesus says, of these three, who was a neighbor? The lawyer answers correctly, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus makes his point. Okay, so go and do likewise. It's simple. The point is this. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how can I be a neighbor? You see, the, the lawyer was asking the wrong kind of question. Jesus teaches that any person in need is our neighbor. And our response and responsibility is to ask, how can I be a neighbor to those in need? Remember, the lawyer didn't deny that loving others as you love yourself has some inherent responsibility to help your neighbor. What he wanted to do, though, was narrow the scope of who he was required to help. And in doing so, he'd be able to exclude people from his concern. But then Jesus flips that thinking upside down and says, you shouldn't be thinking about who your neighbor is so that you can exclude, but you should be thinking, how can I be a neighbor to those in need? Jesus says, don't consider ethnicity, don't consider social status, but consider need and proximity. As you come into contact with people, this, this Samaritan was in proximity to someone who had legitimate need. And Jesus says, there you found a neighbor. And it's to this man you are required to love him as you would love yourself. Jesus says that the heart that's aligned with God should look for how to expand compassion and generosity, not how to limit it. See, ministry to the poor and needy, what we often call mercy ministry, is not optional for the believer. And this teaching is not limited to this parable either. Here's some straightforward directives from the New Testament. James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see what James is saying? He's saying genuine faith in Christ will inevitably lead to good works. Now, again, we can't get this backwards. We talked a lot about this in our sermon series in James. It's not that work uh, produces faith or salvation. We don't work to earn salvation. What James is saying is that a person who's been saved by grace through faith will inevitably begin to evidence that saving faith by works. Works are the fruit of a genuine faith. When a tree is alive and well and healthy, it produces fruit the fruit is evidence of aliveness right it's evidence of vitality and what I love about this passage in James is that he the, the example he uses to talk about this genuine faith 
is not expressed in platitudes and empty promises like go in peace, be warmed, be filled. I hope it all works out for you. But in tangible, practical ministry to the poor. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but who is generous to the needy honors him. This wisdom saying is that, is that if you oppress the poor, it's equated with dishonoring and insulting God. But on the other hand, generosity to the needy is equated with honoring God. Here's another one, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You see what Isaiah is talking about here? He's, he's defining what true religion is. Not that fasting is bad, not that praying is bad, not that sacrifice is bad, but he's saying if that's all it amounts to, it's empty religiosity. Your faith must be put into practice and again, in particular, ministry to those in need. And I think the reason why the Bible shows that time and time again is because ministry to those in need is going to cost you. And we don't like to pay for things, unless they're for ourselves, of course, right? He's saying out of your own resources, out of your own reserves, you will serve. And what does that ultimately do? It shows that our reserves and our money and our time are not our gods. Like Jesus said, we can't serve both God and money. Here's another one, Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. It really doesn't get more straightforward than that. When we, when we uh, despise the poor among us, the Bible calls it sin. But generosity to the poor leads to blessing. David's Platt, David Platt in his book, Counterculture, helps us here. He writes, we need to open our eyes then to the reality that when most people in the world hear the word rich, they picture us. Platt's writing to a, an American church. So he's also saying, us in this room, when, when the world around us hears the word rich, this is who they picture. Indeed, average, ordinary, middle class, working Americans are an extremely wealthy aristocracy in a world surrounded by billions of extremely poor neighbors. And Jesus has called us to love these neighbors as ourselves. Seven Mile, God is concerned with the poor. And as those who follow Christ, we are also to be concerned with the things that concern the Lord. We have a responsibility to love the poor and needy neighbors as our selves so what does that look like that's our final point our ministry to the poor now as we consider our ministry to the poor it's important that we get our motivation on this correct look at second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for our sake he became poor 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 to get the context of this, you're going to see that Paul's talking about uh, Christians being generous in, in their ministry efforts. And Paul doesn't miss the opportunity to make clear what our motivation is as we give and serve. So Paul says, look, believer, look at the grace of Jesus. Consider what he has done. Jesus is the Son of God who left the eternal comforts, glories, and riches of heaven to come to earth as a man. And why did he do it? For your sake, for my sake, that though he was rich for your sake and mine, he took on poverty, our poverty, so that by, his, by taking our poverty, we could have his richness. Friends, that's the gospel. Jesus exchanged the richness of his life to take on the poverty of our sin and death. So that we who are in debt to sin, enslaved to death, might have the richness of his life. When you consider that redeeming grace, when you consider that abundant generosity, what Paul is saying is as you think on that, as you focus on that, as that is uh, taken on deep into your soul and into your bones, you know what's going to happen? The heart of greed and hardness of heart will begin to melt. Where we feel stinginess, where we feel greed, where we feel like it's just someone else's problem. When you consider the grace and generosity of Christ, it should produce in you gratitude for all that he's done. And that cup of gratitude from Christ is so abundant. It is so overflowing that you will be overflowed your cup will, will run over with gratitude and generosity to others. And that's the point of 1 John 3, 16 to 18. John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what's the implication? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, this is Pastor John's way of speaking with tenderness to his flock. Let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. He's saying don't let our love, don't let Christian love merely just flow from our lips. Let it flow from our hands. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we could lay down our lives for others. Does that mean it's going to cost you? Yes, that's the point. It cost Jesus his life. Does that mean you're going to have to go without some things? Yes, Jesus went without things too. He laid down his life so that we would lay down our lives for others. And when you understand 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and 1 John 3, 16 through 18, our motivation for giving and serving the poor is not based on duty. It's not based on performance or merit, but it's based on gratitude, an overwhelming sense of gratitude for all that Christ has given us. When you realize, friends, that you were poor before you met Christ. 
And yet Christ gave you his richness so that we could be elevated out of poverty. It changes you. Mo Leverett, who has spent his life in service to the poor, writes this. If Christ, who lived in the most extravagant, gated community in the universe, was willing to move into the ghetto of Israel, it's no large sacrifice in comparison for us to cross the tracks to reach the lost of our cities. Many Christians today have never experienced the riches and joy of ministry to the poor. We should see the inner city for the mission field that it is, a field of great need and great opportunity. Now this is not a case of liberal versus conservative. This is not a case of social gospel versus the gospel of salvation. This is a case of obedience. Are we going to take seriously the scripture's mandate of our responsibility to the poor? Seven Mile, our motivation for ministry to the poor must be fueled by the gospel. It must be fueled by a heart that is overflowing with gratitude and generosity. And what that will do, it will keep us from serving from a place of begrudging duty. Why? Because we're serving from a place of gratitude. It will keep us from feeling like there's this pressure on us to do good works to earn salvation. Why? Because salvation is a gift to be received, not a merit to earn. And when we keep this proper motivation in mind, it will keep us from developing a Messiah complex. Like we're everybody's savior. Because we know ultimately we are beggars like everybody else. We're simply there to meet real, tangible needs of other image bearers. With the goal first and foremost to honor Christ. And secondly, with the hope that we can introduce them to the bread of life. That's our motivation for mercy ministry. What's our method? I've got four for you. First is this. Pray fervently. Every ministry endeavor should be covered in prayer. Why? So that we minister from a place of Godward power and focus. Prayer, unlike anything else, taps us into the power of God and it aligns our heart with his. Prayer becomes a, a, a time and a relational connectivity to God where the misaligned motivations can get realigned. It becomes a place where we can come and be joined together as brothers and sisters remembering our poverty and then going in to serve with the power of God himself. Pray fervently. Second, learn continually. You want to know what I learned as I studied and prepared for this sermon? That my personal, I'm speaking about Clint Patronella, my personal understanding and knowledge of poverty is surface deep. I was blown away by how much I didn't know. I need to spend much more time reading and learning about poverty so that I can better understand and better serve my neighbors in need. It's a deep subject with complexities of causes, nuances of how to alleviate suffering. Because if we're not careful, sometimes our helping can actually hurt those in need. We can enable things. We can actually contribute to long uh, and further poverty. We don't want to hurt the ones we're trying to help. And that means we need to learn continuously. Here's a few books I'd recommend that were incredibly helpful to me this week. 
The first is When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Next is Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. And the third is Counterculture by David Platt. If you're going, Pastor, I'm only going to read one. I'm not a reader. Which one should I read? Make it the first one, When Helping Hurts. It's the gold standard for a thoroughly biblical and distinctly Christian approach to mercy ministries, to guys who are economics professors, so they, they understand kind of larger macroeconomical things that are going on, and they've given their entire lives to mercy ministry. They know what they're doing, and you can see it evidenced in their you can also go to websites like worldvision.org and povertyusa.org facts. If you want to learn about the current state of poverty, both globally and nationally, you'll find, if you're, if you're like, I love the stats, you'll get the, all the stats that your heart uh, desires there. Learn continually. Third, we want to participate relationally. So as we look to be engaged in mercy ministry, we want to participate relationally. See, we have to remember that poverty is not merely an issue with statistics, poverty involves real people who are really hurting. And every person experiencing poverty is an image bearer of God. We have to keep that in mind. And they deserve the same dignity and compassion as everybody else. Think about this. While poverty certainly includes lack of income and lack of resources for sustainable living, which ultimately leads to hunger and limited access to basic services like education and medical care, it actually goes way beyond the economics. Listen to what Brian Ficker, who wrote uh, When Helping Hurt, says. If you ask poor people around the world about what it means to be poor, they'll tell you this, that to be poor is to be full of shame, to be embarrassed, to be humiliated, and don't miss this one, to feel less than human. To feel less than human. Poverty goes beyond the economic. It impacts people psychologically, emotionally, and socially. That's why our ministry to the poor should be relational, if at all possible, because it's through relationship that those kinds of deep soul hurts can bring healing. There's just something restorative in giving someone the gift of your personal presence. When you sit down, you ask them their name. When you say, tell me your story. When you actually listen. It just, it just brings healing. Right? Every one of us has felt that when someone has truly listened to us. They deserve the same kind of life-giving personal presence. It brings restoration to their humanity when we treat people as image bearers. Kevin Young has a helpful guide as we consider how we can participate. He says, as you consider your personal obligation to the poor... And your church's corporate obligation, keep in mind these two principles, proximity and necessity. So that the closer the person is to you, relationally, spiritually, or geographically, and the more acute the need is, because it's immediate, urgent, and within your unique power to provide, the greater your obligation is to give, assist, and get involved. What he's saying is, 
at the closer, it's like the parable of the Good Samaritan. That person was incredibly proximate, like right there across the street from him. And incredibly in need, right? Dying, left half dead. And so the obligation for the Samaritan to act was very, very, very high. And he's saying, as we go out into the world, keep those two things in mind, proximity and necessity. And those will help be some principles that guide you in your participation. So how can we participate? Well, first, start by investigating local ministries and different social services that are already involved in serving the poor and our community and ask how you can be meaningfully involved. Two of them that, that we've worked with at Seven Mile are the Community Day Center, which serves the homeless population here in Waltham, as well as Healthy Waltham, which is a food bank that helps make sure that the needy do not go hungry. They're two great local organizations working with the poor to alleviate some of the effects of poverty. And when you go there to serve, don't say, hey, I've got all these great ideas and I know how I can serve you. Don't do that. That's arrogant. Show up and say, How can I help? What are your needs? And I'd love to help meet them. Ask them what they are. Pastor Jeremy Stewart, a lot of you know him and his family. We sent them to plant a church on Cape Cod. I came across a brilliant post of his the other day on Facebook. There's still some nuggets out there on Facebook, friends. Something I've recently learned. Here's what he writes. If I want to help someone, saying what can I help with, Or what do you need is much more effective than let me know if I can help. You see, let me know if I can help is said from the other side of the fence, inviting someone to cross that fence to ask you for help. Rather, what do you need crosses the fence for that person and makes asking for help a lot easier and a lot more likely to happen. I'm going to try to use the latter from now on. The first is often said with good intentions, but I wonder sometimes if we're banking on the other person not crossing the fence. That let me know if I can help is like that go and be warmed and clothed. But when we say, what do you need? How can I help? What do you need? What can I help with? Those are coming closer. It gives the person an actionable thing for you to say yes to. And finally, Give and serve generously. Actually look at your budget. Find luxuries there that you can go without in order to create margin for giving. That takes intentionality. That takes preparation ahead of time. That takes a willingness to go without so that you can fill someone else's need. Also, make a list of your talents, your trades, your assets, and consider how you can contribute to those in need. All of this requires some intentionality ahead of time so that we're able to say yes to things as we come into people in need. One more quote from Brian Fickert. He says, of course, there's no one size fits all recipe for how each church should respond to the biblical mandate of ministry to the poor. Some are called to pursue poverty alleviation as a career, while others are called to do so as volunteers. Some are called to engage in hands-on relational ministry, while others are better suited to support frontline workers through financial donations, prayer, and other types of support. But each Christian has a unique set of gifts, callings, and responsibilities that influence the scope and manner in which to fulfill the biblical mandate to help the poor. 
You see the wisdom there? He's saying, there's no one size fits all. I'm not saying everyone needs to go right now out and, and, and quit your jobs and go into full-time uh, poverty ministry. But there is a mandate for us to do something. And that requires us to start asking, how has God wired and called me to serve the poor? Friends, God is concerned with the poor. We see it in his nature. We see it in his commands. And we see it in his actions. The Bible is also emphatically crystal clear that we who follow Christ have a responsibility to love our neighbors and care for those in need. And as we serve, let's remember our motivation, the gospel itself. Let's be wise in our methodology so that we can help alleviate the suffering of the poor. Let's pray.